Hi, this is Michael Shapiro, and welcome back to the Delacorte Review Podcast, where in each episode we talk with a writer about how his or her story came to be, meaning all that went wrong and ultimately right in bringing to life a story that needed to be told. As in season one, each of these writers has a story that appears in this issue of the review. Five stories built around a single theme. In this issue, that theme is silence. Celine Thomas got the sort of assignment that can leave a writer baffled. And okay, full disclosure, it did not come from us, just so you know. The assignment was to go to Alabama and research a story about a lynching that took place in 1892. She went, and Celine, who is a terrific journalist, reported like mad and came back with a story that was not necessarily the story she was sent to find. So out went that original story, and what emerged was something new and very different. A story about a journey into the past. And as journey stories almost always do, to discovering something powerful about herself. I went to Monroe County, Alabama, which is in the southwest region, um, just below what's called the Black Belt. And um, a different publication uh, brought me an idea about investigating a century past lynching took place in this county in 1892 and initially thought it was the hook would be in that it was the hometown of Harper Lee, the writer of To Kill a Mockingbird, and also Jeff Sessions' hometown, uh, the former attorney general. So thinking that going there might bring some context to the current state of politics in America. It did not turn out to be that that was the case at all. When I got there, I spent a lot of time in basements and, you know, um, archives. And that's when I started, the the story became animated for me, um, was strangely in reading these old documents and flipping through these old books and trying to find essentially ghosts that there was no record of whatsoever, Um, not just because they were lynched, not just because they were young, not just because this was 100 years ago, and not just because they were black, but um, all of those things combined. And so that sort of fueled me further. And this editor was trying to rush me a bit. You know, you have to move on from that. You have to move on from that. But I, I just couldn't. It started off by who were these men? And the, the, the four men who were lynched, who were they? That question, I think, is impossible to answer. Um, and that's what started off. But what initially became the question was, why am I flipping through every page? And, and you know, what can, I, what can I glean? And it's sort of, it was the kind of thing where you're standing on a mountain of documents and none of them is telling you any one thing they're just sort of drawing outlines of a of a place and a a time so far removed from my own reality that I wanted to get as much a context as I could from them um, before I felt comfortable writing them down and you know having any sort of bearing on such a brutal past, such a brutal history. So this is not exactly buried news. It spreads ultimately nationally, right? This becomes 
a big story, this lynching. Mm-hmm. How, and in the, what did you begin to read in the local papers and then ultimately as far, as away, far away as the New York Times about this, this lynching? Mm-hmm. Even San Francisco. I mean, some of the, the news reports were repetitive. So you could tell that they were either getting them from each other, fueling their own speculations. Um, but the most reliable accounts are the most local and the Monroe Journal in particular which still exists today, um, reported the most detailed account of the lynching, uh, as well as the Montgomery Advertiser. But their bias is also very, very clear. Uh, they said, oh, well, um, far be it from us to say that these men were not executed in the manner deserved. Um, although we don't condone going outside of the law, this is sort of what needed to be done. Uh, for this community. And within a couple of weeks, you see a warning from the editor's column to the black community, to the local black community, saying that they know about the gatherings that are happening there in anger after the lynchings and that they know the le- the names of the leaders and that they're being carefully watched. This is in the local paper. This is in the local paper. And then about a week later, there's a follow-up by a man Professor F.J. Marshall, in parentheses, C.O.L. colored, and he says, no, this is all wrong about incitement, which is a lynchable offense, of course, and the black community here is very satisfied with the fate those boys met with. They were criminals. Uh, they were they were monsters and, you know, probably on a mission to prevent more lynching, he tried to, you know, calm the white community from from potentially much more violence. I I have to wonder whether in reading all these accounts, these voluminous accounts that you're going through, the local the several local papers and ultimately na- nationally, whether that comment from this local the one as I recall, the one black person who's actually ever quoted in any of these stories is almost as chilling as the fact of the lynching itself, which is, and he's, it's certainly because. It's hard to know, but it must be because the black community, which had just, this particular black community, which had just had four young men, none older than 19, according to some reports, none older than 25, according to another, um, pulled from their community, brutally lynched, um, reports that they were executed with their hands tied behind their backs, reports that they were strung up and then shot up, um, torn apart limb by limb and burned as they had burned the bodies of their helpless victims, as the Monroe Journal put it. Um, clearly, if not in utter despair, they the, the community must have been enraged and, and potentially seeking vengeance uh, for this heinous crime and outside of the outside of the rules of the law and two of the men were uh, allegedly brothers although the names even their names are mixed up in different accounts it's not exactly clear the four identities but the one thing that is consistent is that four men were lynched in Monroe County Alabama and Monroeville October 12th, 1892. So to imagine that four men were taken from a single community and lynched in this in this brutal manner, the first in this county, um, 
you can imagine the incensed community and that they were probably sitting around thinking, what are we going to do about this? The they being? The black sharecropping community. It, it is noteworthy that this takes place in 1892, mm-hmm. that none of the men is older than the age of 19, mm-hmm. which means that one would, just counting it out, these are the children of, for, of, of former enslaved people. Yes. This, is, this is one generation away from slavery. Mm-hmm. And Not that sharecropping is very different from slavery. Anyway. Right. I mean, it, it's sort of... It, and you also mentioned that this is the first lynching to take place in, Mon- in Monroeville, mm-hmm. in Monroe County, Alabama. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to be the last, is it? No. There would be 13 more before 1943. 1943. Yes, and several into the 50s and 60s as well. Even, I don't know, um, in Alabama, well into the 80s. Not this county, but in Alabama. You go through this voluminous research, first about the town and the nature of this lynching itself. And then you do an even more assiduous job of reporting. You do even more reporting about lynching in general and the fact that lynching across the South takes thousands and thousands of lives, primarily of black men. And in many cases, the overwhelming majority of cases, I th- I, as you write, is for one reason, mm-hmm. which is... Rape. Attempted rape. Um, looking at a white woman. You know, that dirty word, miscegenation. Uh, just the vilification of black men as sexual predators as a catch-all for racial terror. You, there is in the story of the, Mon- of the Monroe Four the suggestion that Jenny or Jeanette, the daughter, may have been, what was the term, of, the term that's used? Outraged. But there's, there's no, but somehow that enters into the conversation, although there's no evidence of that, nor can there be. Her body has been destroyed. And yet there's a suggestion that surely rape, sex, had to have played a role in this. Yes. And the only reliable record that I found of that is in Ida B. Wells' Southern Horrors when she is enumerating uh, these Monroeville lynchings and, and says that there were allegations she was outraged, um, raped. And what's interesting, though, is when I was in Monroeville, I was speaking with a very helpful librarian uh, in the local um, library there in town, and he followed up with me by email to suggest the same uh, thing, although he didn't... It was based on town lore. It was based on a... Um, story that had been perpetuated uh, throughout the decades um, and that just kind of went to went to prove to me that this is not a bygone phenomena in fact the foundation of these claims are embedded in our American character they, it's a um, it's a feature of our understanding of one another and I think of black men in particular. And that is a that is a powerful 
and scary realization, although it's it's not new to many people, but it's so ingrained at this point that to go back and to, and to say, when did this begin? How did this begin? And how has it carried through? What is the legacy? Um, that's sort of, that, those, that was the stakes of this story. As, uh, that's why it was difficult to write. Beca- because of what? Because of, and we should explain, but one of the issues in the story is that it's about who you are as a writer, and you should explain. Right. Well, my grandfather is a black man. My father's a black man. It's not really something, this type of brutality is not something that we really spoke about as a family per se. Uh, the conversations about race and, and all of these things, of course, they, they are threaded through. But uh, there is a rage that, there's an underlying rage that is uh, really important to understand. And for me, as a woman and a, as a very light woman who walks down the street without any of the burden of, of black people in America, um, that, that was important for me to get a hold of. And maybe it's personal, but maybe it's, um, it's certainly a, an investigation of identity. But that identity is broad. It's not just mine. It's the American character. And these things all go back to slavery. And so one lynching, what's the significance of one lynching 125 years ago, 26 years ago? Well, just that it's our history. And it's very quite, it's, it's really very quite recent. Uh, and that this, the institutional um, mechanisms have changed, but there is a social and cultural effect of this this history, and it's mixed in with a lot of things like pride um, and rage and retribution and fear and powerlessness um, and power. But it's there, and it's kind of the first time that this conversation that that black America has been safe enough to have this conversation out loud. It's interesting in that I think for many writers thinking about what you're talking about, thinking about their own work, there is a very tricky balance that never goes away. It never gets neatly resolved between allowing your emotions to carry you, which in many ways propels you on the journey, and then having to at some point tamp them down there's a moment I remember you talked about in an early draft mm-hmm. when, and it becomes ever more muted in a much, I, I would argue, in a really much more effective way. Mm-hmm. When you come to the realization that you, well, you should explain it about these four men. Yes. The thing that I kept hearing uh, when I, the, with that initial editor and that initial publisher, and even there was a, a book agent interested and that got me really excited. They kept asking me to take this part out of my piece. And I thought it was the whole point of my piece, which was that I hoped that they'd killed him. I'd hoped that they'd killed 
Richard Johnson and that, in fact, they had been lynched because they were murderers. Not because they were, they had, you know, uh, committed highway robbery or, or they had gathered in a barn and, you know, gotten political and not because they had their identities mistaken, not because uh, they were um, accused of rape, like one third of the total thousands of black men who were lynched, not because of anything that they had nothing to do with, just because of the color of their skin. Because they had taken it upon themselves to take the life of a white man and his daughter. And I think I had it in there as, um, yeah, I hoped that, you know, I hoped that they had killed him. And people really reacted to that. Um, And I, so I knew that that was really what I needed to focus on. I, I had to go back and think, what do I really mean by this? And how do I earn it? And how do I, how do I take the... How do I take the reader there? How do I make them also feel that same desire um, for at least a just uh, death outside of the outside of the law? Um, How'd you do it? I just tried to give as much. I was coming from uh, a place. When I, when I initially wrote that down, and, and I think rather sharply and a little too um, prescriptively, uh, that had been researching this for months and months. And um, not just the identity that I come from, but that this history is so, in so many ways, it's so recent, and it's so brutal, and it's so terrifying. Uh, and it's so persistent that um, I needed to give that to the reader because I think we've, and we as an America have gotten far enough from it in some ways to forget um, its significance. So I needed to take the reader through the facts of what had brought me there. I needed to bring the reader into that archive room when I had snapped at that old cowboy um, I needed to make them understand that rage in order to empathize with the idea that, okay, for four young black men to have killed a white landowner and his girl in 1892, Alabama, they must have been really angry and probably impulsive. Um, if they did it if they did it and if they had you know great if if they had then at least they would have died doing something that they chose uh and probably this guy deserved it i mean i'm not i'm not above saying that he's a slave owning uh plantation owner uh, the son of a slave owner and plantation owner um, and was known am- amongst his community for antagonizing the black community, not uh, paying his debts. And someone, a neighbor, even said that he should have gotten into a, you know, an argument at his gate is not at all unusual. That he was killed by a couple Negroes is not so strange. So you can imagine that this man was standing at his gate on top of his white power, and these 
one or two or three or four young men said, no, that's enough, not today. And I needed to, I needed to try to get the reader to that feeling. When you got to the end of the story, how emotionally drained were you? Not, you mean the end of the reporting or the end of the story? The end of the story. So yesterday. Yes, yesterday <laughs> when you were done, when you got an email from your editor saying, uh, two o'clock, good for you? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was uh, more energized now than I was in somewhere in the middle. Um, but I do think this is something that could go on for quite a while. I mean, I, I don't feel finished. It doesn't feel done. Um, it's very layered. It's very complex. And I, I guess I feel like the year and three months that has happened since I started reporting on it, I've, I've have such a much greater understanding at this point that I can only imagine going further to further, uh, that understanding even more. Um, and that, there are more people to speak to and I don't feel I feel I just scratched the surface really so far I feel I've just scratched the surface of the south um and and I long to go back really thanks for listening to this episode of the Delacour Review podcast if you are a writer we'll have friends who like all writers is struggling to tell the story that he or she needs to tell, we invite you to share this podcast with them, along with those from season one. You can find this story and the others in issue number two at www.delacortreview.org, where you can sign up for our newsletter. You can also follow us at Twitter at Delacorte Review. The Delacorte Review appears three times a year, winter, spring, and fall and its home is the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. The podcast is produced by Katie Ferguson, and the theme music you hear is by Jim Okar. The editor of the Delacorte Review is Mike Hoyt. Our senior editor is Sissy Falligant, and associate editors are Natasha Rodriguez and Abigail Covington. Our illustrator is Eleanor Hamelin. We'll see you next time.